This is the business of sports. Should Major League Baseball shorten up the season? How do we present football to the audience of the future? I don't think that most players understand the power that they have. Michael Barr. The future of IndyCar racing is looking bright. Scott Soshnick. Very basic math here. More bidders means more money. Evan Novi williams The team value has essentially quadrupled. And the leaders in the sports industry. Time to bring in our guest, Hal Steinbrenner. National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman. Atlanta Braves President Derek Schiller. Patriots President Jonathan Kraft. Bloomberg Business of Sports. From Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Evan Novi williams Every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Coming up on today's show, Scott, Evan, and I will speak with the CEO of the Peach Bowl, Gary Stoken. Stay tuned for insight on the business of big-time college sports, plus the attendance dip in the collegiate athletes. And let's not forget, Michael, a fantastic story about Michael Jordan uh, that, that a lot of people I don't think uh, already know, uh, but you don't want to miss it towards the end of the interview. It's pretty good. That's coming up shortly, but first let's get into some of the week's top stories. And let's start with former New England Patriots tight end Rob Gronkowski. Uh, it's He gave kind of an emotional press conference. Now, it was supposed to be because he's announcing a new line of CBD products, and it leaves the door open for the return to football. And I, we're going to talk about this in a second, but ironically, uh, I had a chance to also speak with Terrell Davis, the former wideout for Denver. Running back. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry, the running back for Denver. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me, let me do a pickup on that. Uh, I had a chance to speak with Terrell Davis, the former running back for Denver, and uh, the years he played, and he had to quit prematurely because of the pain. He's also in uh, CBD business for a drinkable product. Uh, let's give a taste of uh, what we talked about. When I was playing, there were many weeks and, and days where I didn't recover as fast as I would have liked. And, you know, CBD and, and its properties in terms of uh, pain management, uh, working with inflammation, allowing you to recover and rest were things that an athlete who's trying to be at the highest level needs. We'll have more of that interview coming up later. We have a Labor Day special that's going to come up, and we'll play more of a section of that. But I bring up this problem, and it's the same problem for Gronk. It's the same problem for Davis and many other athletes. CBD is not allowed in the NFL currently. Uh, and uh, I always wonder why, because it obviously now they've taken out the, the THC part. That's the part that makes you high. But if it helps with pain, and many people say it does, why not allow it? Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're fast approaching a point where all the leagues are going to approach all of marijuana, but especially CBD a little differently. Uh, you're right. The, the, they're both CBD and THC are both compounds found in marijuana. THC is the psychoactive part of it. CBD is not. Uh, and athletes, there are hundreds, thousands of athletes around the world that are using this thing, whether they're allowed to or not. Um, you know, the alternative in a lot of cases is heavy duty pain medication, right? Which has a whole host of negative side effects that CBD, at least, I mean, there's a lot of science yet to be done on CBD, but at least from what we understand right now, uh, that CBD does not have those those same side effects. I think you're going to hear more and more, you know, as athletes like Terrell Davis and, and Gronkowski 
get involved here. Uh, the UFC just signed a big partnership with a CBD company that includes a lot of uh, research that'll be done there. I think you're going to hear more and more about this, and I do think that the league's position is going to change pretty quickly. Yeah, that, that is something that Davis was saying, that right, the league is looking at it, but they, they want more proof. Uh, and I think you're right. I think as, as we go along, this is going to become commonplace. I think part of it is because many years ago, when you used to have the old movies from the 30s, Reefer Madness and, and all the other stuff and some wild-eyed guy playing the piano, uh, and that was the propaganda back then. Uh, and again, I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, some people say that marijuana is a gateway to other drugs, but I'm not talking about marijuana. I'm talking about CBD. Outside of, outside of the CBD part, did you, did you listen to, to some of the things Gronkowski yeah. said about, yeah. about the physical, the brutal nature of the sport and what he was struggling with? Oh, it, it's, his back is a disaster. And, yeah. and many others that played in the NFL the same way. But you can see it. I mean, these guys take hits that are unbelievable. Yeah, he took a hit in the Super Bowl this year that he says he, he slept five minutes. He was crying in bed the night after the Super Bowl when they won. And then for the next four weeks, he was not sleeping more than 20 minutes a night because of the pain. Um, and I watched the play. It's a it's a standard I, I remember that basic play. tackle. There's nothing all that crazy about it. You wouldn't think twice about it if, if you were watching a game and saw it. Um, but between Rob Gronkowski talking about this stuff, Andrew Luck, which we discussed earlier this week, also retiring and talking about kind of the brutal effect, not just physically, but also mentally that the sport can have on you. Um, just does seem like there is more discussion now about, you know, the effect that playing football and doing it for, for year on year, uh, what that can have on you. Let's talk about the Kansas City Royals. The owner, David Glass, is negotiating to sell the team to a local businessman, John Sherman. And the price tag, according to sources with ESPN, more than a billion dollars. Yeah, not bad. David Glass, the former Walmart CEO, bought a team in, in 2000 for $96 million. Uh, looks like he's about to sell it for over a billion. Not a bad, uh, not a bad 10x profit there. Um, but yeah, this is uh, you know the most recent MLB team to sell short of the money that, that was purchased when, when, when Bruce Sherman, no relation to John, when he bought the Marlins, uh, I guess two years ago now, that was $1.2 billion. Uh, the Royals and the Marlins, I would argue, are probably the two least valuable Major League Baseball teams, so this one sold a little bit less than that, but it means that every essentially means that every MLB franchise right now is worth over a billion dollars, which is a which is a good metric for for Major League Baseball. What's amazing to me is that recently Lord and Taylor was sold for a hundred million dollars, and now we're talking about the Kansas City Royals <laughs> for about a billion dollars. That's amazing to me. One franchise, but there are only thirty, as as Scott has always said, there are only thirty of these things out there. Yeah, and and the the Royals are about to sign what it sounds like a, a new TV deal, according to ESPN, that's going to double their you know their annual TV money from twenty five million to fifty million. You can bet that John Sherman is aware of that negotiation and that and that was factoring in. As well, um, but yeah, you're right. There's not there's not too many of these franchises. Uh, there's a scarcity. People like to, to buy them, and you know, I, I can't think of a single one that's ever been sold for less than it was purchased for. Uh, so they're also they're also proving to be pretty good investments so far. Uh, let's talk about uh, Penn State, and actually, this kind of goes back to the mm. first story we were talking about with football. James Franklin uh, could be impacted by the team. X team's physician in a lawsuit. 
Let's explain that. Yeah, so earlier this week, a former Penn State football physician, Scott Lynch, who was with the team from 2014 through March of this year before he was fired, uh, he's filed a lawsuit against a number of people associated with Penn State, including James Franklin, who's the Penn State football coach, Sandy Barber, who's the athletic director over there. He's claiming that he pushed back on James Franklin interfering with his treatment of players that, that Franklin had pressured people to get on the field when, you know, in his met, expert medical opinion, they, they, they should not have been there. Um, which is a, obviously is a huge claim. One, two disclaimers here. One Franklin and the, the school have, you know, vehemently denied any wrongdoing here Two, Lynch doesn't provide any direct evidence, at least not yet. Right. He says these things happened. I'm sure he has examples in his head that he's thinking of. None of them are actually listed in the lawsuit. So we're not quite there yet. Um, but we talk a lot about NCAA problems on the show, NCAA violations. In my opinion, this is the most severe type. The ones in which players or athletes are not protected by the schools that they go to, by the administrators at the school that they attend, those feel like the the, the most uh, the most grievous. So there's going to be a lot more information here, I'm sure. If there is any kind of pretrial discovery, I'd imagine that is going to be where the meat and potatoes are and where we can kind of figure out where this stands. But on its face, not a great look for, for James Franklin or Penn State. Now let's get to this week's interview with the CEO of the Peach Bowl, Gary Stoken. He's the man behind this weekend's kickoff game between Alabama and Duke. Under his leadership, the Peach Bowl, the big postseason event, has enjoyed sellouts of 18 of the past 20 years, earning the second longest sellout streak in the bowl business. He's also distributed more than $173 million in team payouts. Gary, happy opening weekend of the college football season. Yeah, great time of the year, Evan. We're excited. Uh, It's going to be a great year for us with the... uh... Chick-fil-A kickoff game with number two Alabama and Duke. And then we close the season with CFP semifinal Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl with either number one against number four or number two against number three. So great time of the year for college football in Atlanta. Absolutely. And and you're excited, as you said. College football fans around the country also excited right now. Uh, and I think a lot of them don't realize that, that you are the reason that they're excited right now. 12 years ago, you and the Peach Bowl had this crazy, wacky idea to put two good college football games teams together to open the year, which is something that wasn't happening at the time. You know, at the time, Alabama was opening against Southeast Alabama State. Um, and that became, you know, the impetus for all these big college football games on on week one. Uh, take us back to that decision, because it seems so obvious now. It's such a great commercial opportunity. But back then, I'm sure it wasn't uh, wasn't so obvious. Well, I'm a very competitive person, and we had made a bid in 2006 for the uh, BCS to host the national championship game. Uh, They had gone from the BCS to evolving into uh, starting a national championship game, and what what wound up happening is the four existing BCS bowls, the Rose, the Sugar, the Orange, and the uh, Fiesta, uh, were able to talk the commissioners into a double host model where they would host their bowl game one week, and then the next week they would rotate the national championship game. So uh, simultaneously, the NCAA had legislated a 12th game to the conference or to the schedules. Uh, so they moved from 11 games to 12 games. So I told my board, I said, look, if they're not going to let us in the BCS on the back side of the season, we're going to start the BCS on the front side of the season, and we're going to start a bowl-type atmosphere game in, in the kickoff game. Uh, we had just brought the College Football Hall of Fame to Atlanta, 
And so we really wanted to use this as a celebration to kick off college football with a vision to make Atlanta the capital of college football. And uh, I called Terry Don Phillips at Clemson, who was a friend, and uh, you know they were going to be highly ranked. They wound up being ranked number nine. Um, and I called Nick Saban, a friend, and said, Nick, I'm starting this. And Alabama was coming off a 7-6 and six season, losing to Louisiana Monroe in Nick's first year over there at Alabama. And Nick said, yeah, Gary, I definitely want to come over and play because if we can win recruiting in Atlanta and then finish second to Georgia in Georgia, we'll play for national championships. So wait, Gary, and, you're, you're to blame for this whole Alabama thing? Uh, well, Nick would tell you that that was the start of their run because they came into to uh beat to Atlanta and beat Clemson thirty four to ten, was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, Alabama's back, and that's the start of the dynasty or the run, successful run that Alabama's been on. The next year they came in, ranked number five, beat Virginia Tech number seven in our Chick fil A kickoff game and won the national championship. One thing you said is that this is the only weekend of the year where there's no NFL competition and that has to be big. Well, you're right. It really has helped us uh, because in the South, you know, there weren't any really pro teams here until 1966. And so the college teams were the pro teams. And so there's, you know, over 100 years of, of passion and, and just great followings uh, by teams in Tuscaloosa or in, uh, you know, Baton Rouge, et cetera. And so we've played off of that to really create an atmosphere now where this game with Alabama Duke is going to be sold out. It's, uh, it's our 12th sellout uh, of Chick-fil-A kickoff games out of 14 games. Um, so people are dying to see their team play at the beginning of the season, and, and we really uh, look forward to kicking off college football every year with a meaningful game in Atlanta. And give us a sense of the, of the money involved here. What is Alabama and, and Duke, what do they get paid to, to appear in a, in a week one game like this? I'm going to guess it's Alabama gets more than Duke. Well, the teams are going to net more than they can at a home game. That's one of the reasons why the ADs will do this. And, you know, what we've tried to do is create a win-win-win. So it's a win for the city because this game will create, you know, between 50 and $60 million of economic impact, uh, which translates to about $4 million in, in, in state sales tax into the coffers into Atlanta. Um, the, other, the other win is on the – the AD gets a win because of the payout that he's going to receive. And if you play a home-and-home home game as an AD, you make money at the home game. But when you go on the road the next year, you don't make any money. So in the case of Alabama, what they've done, which is very smart, they'll do neutral-neutral. So they get a financial windfall each, each year that they play out of those two years rather than one year they'll make money and the next year they don't make any money. So uh, – so it's, it's definitely a win financially. It's a win for the fans because they get a chance with enough tickets to come see the game, and they're all excited about watching their team play the first time. Uh, it's a win for the coach because the coach recruits in Atlanta and Georgia, but he also knows that the best time their teams can improve is week one to week two, and now they've got live game film against good competition where they can coach up their team collectively and individually by position. And uh, the other thing is that the coach, you know, really wants to play in a game like this because the intensity level of the offseason workouts goes to a whole new high. And so his team's really ready to play versus playing, as you mentioned in, in the opening, 
a team that may be nondescript and that the players think they're going to just walk over. Gary, do teams or ADs, do they come to you these days? Do you have to turn people away, or, and how do you pick your matchups? Yeah, it's a great question. We've, we've got it both ways. Uh, you know, I travel a lot. Uh, and, you know, just to give you an example, going through the media days at the Pac-12, uh, the ACC, the SEC, uh, the Big Ten, you know, we've had coaches and ADs come to us and say, hey, because the CFP selection committee is demanding that people play tough non-conference games, we need to get on, into your game. And so, you know, I had numerous coaches talk to me during the, uh, the media days in July, as well as AD say, hey, we have an opening here, or a coach say, hey, we'll play anybody anywhere. And so it's, it's really evolved from me reaching out to a lot of people in the beginning to now getting calls uh, from ADs and coaches. Can you give me a breakdown as best you can, a percentage, whatever, of who keeps what money? And we all know sort of the pots that money come from. You've got your media, you've got your concession parking, you've got your tickets. Who gets what? Yeah, it's really challenging for for us uh, at Peach Bowl because in a a game like this, you do not get any of the TV revenues, unlike in a bowl game. Does that go to the conferences? Yeah, the conference, uh, because basically what we're doing is we're taking – a game from the school, uh, each of the schools, and putting it together in Atlanta. So that game is dictated by that conference uh, TV deal, uh, which I could get into that. There's a real interesting part of the Rubik's Cube because, you know, you go after a Notre Dame and you go after an SEC team. Well, SEC wants the game on CBS or ESPN, and Notre Dame wants the game on NBC. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the hurdles you have to jump over. You have to look at the TV contracts by the conferences or the individual teams you're going to contract with. Um, so we don't get any of the TV revenues. So we have to make the budget and the payouts based on ticket sales and on sponsorship. Uh, we don't get any of the food and beverage. We pay a rent to Mercedes-Benz, and they keep all the food and beverage. So it's a skinny budget that you've got to really – you know, on the front side, make sure that you've got your business done correctly or else you could you could lose a lot of money in a game like this. What's more lucrative for it? Let's say I'm Alabama. What's more lucrative for me, playing in the Chick-fil-A kickoff game through the Peach Bowl or playing in a non-semifinal Peach Bowl game at the end of the year? You know, it's pretty close, Evan. Um, you know, it, it's pretty close. I mean, we pay $6 million uh, to each team like this year and the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, we had number seven Michigan against number 10 Florida. And each of those two schools through the CFP were paid $6 million each. Mm. And uh, we're not hitting that number for kickoff games, but we're not too far behind either. Awesome. We're, we're talking with Gary Stoken, the CEO of the Peach Bowl. Uh, and Gary, you know, the, the college football playoff, you know, it started a couple years ago. You're one of the six bowl games on the back end that rotate for the semifinals alongside the Rose, the Sugar, the Orange, the Cotton, and the Fiesta Bowls. In your opinion, has the college football playoff been a success? Yeah, you know, and and the way to answer that is really if you look back to the BCS, uh, prior to the BCS, college football was a regional type of game. People in USC were interested in only the Pac-12 and the Big Ten because they were going to play in the Rose Bowl if they won the Pac-12 uh, championship. People in the SEC were only interested in uh, the Sugar Bowl 
because that was the end of their dreams, you know, if they won the conference. When the BCS started, now all of a sudden you had teams, USC had to worry about what Alabama's doing, LSU had to worry about what Oregon's doing. And so what it did is it made uh, college football a national sport. To now, the fan avidity of uh, college football is second only to the NFL in this country. So it's it's higher than baseball. It's higher than hockey. It's it's higher than the NBA. College football is really become this uh, uh, country's second sport, only behind the NFL. Secondly, we were helped by the NFL's growth. Um, certainly, we rode on the coattail of that. And now with the CFP, we've just taken that fan avidity to another level on top of the uh, the foundation of the BCS um, to where the CFP, now everybody's calling for an 18 playoff. You know, everybody wants more college football. And uh, I hope we don't get to that expansion because I've been around, you know, played college basketball back in the 70s when uh, – you know, there was only you had to win your conference championship to get into the NCAA basketball tournament, and then they moved from 24 teams to 32, to now they're up to 69. Well, what it's done is the regular season doesn't matter in college basketball now, nor does the ACC tournament, which used to be tremendous. Um, if we expand, in my estimation, in college football, the college football playoff, now you'll hurt the regular season. And I don't think that's good for college football. We're already seeing some some drop in some attendance figures and, and ticket uh, purchases. I know, Barr I, wants, that, I know Barr wants to get to attendance, but question for you, Gary, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you had mentioned that now it's a national game. In a chicken and egg, in a chicken and egg world, what came first? Because you've mentioned Chick-fil-A as a sponsor. College f- football and basketball, for that matter, are now sold, now from the sponsorship side, they're sold as national packages, like when Allstate has its logo uh, on the kick on the kick nets. That that was sort of that was groundbreaking at the time because the region regionalization was broken up. People started to look at this as a national buy. Has it changed the way the business of college football works? No doubt about it. When you look at the buys made by, let's use Chick Fil A as an example, who's the title sponsor of our game. In the past, I used to negotiate directly with Chick Fil A, and uh, you know. Th- there would be a a very small TV package that I would package within my title sponsorship. It's now flipped in the CFP to where we, Peach Bowl, has sold our rights to CFP. CFP has taken our rights, our title rights, the Fiesta title rights, and the Cotton Bowl title rights, the semifinals and the national championship. They bundled them packaged them, sold at the ESPN for a 12-year contract for $7.3 billion. Okay, now for ESPN to monetize that, what they have to do is go back and to that title sponsor, and they put a season-long TV package in front of Chick-fil-A, and you're looking at numbers 25 to $30 million for Chick-fil-A to have to make a TV buy to get the rights to be the title sponsor of the Peach Bowl. So it's changed drastically to a point where now ESPN really controls a lot of the title sponsor deals, but it's all done through a media buy that's either season-long college football or year-long with ESPN slash ABC. This ties in with attendance and for games that make great TV, online sports betting. 
and, and it's grown. And I know in my state of Pennsylvania, it has grown. We're now doing it like New Jersey, and it's going to grow across the nation. Can you describe the impact of what this means for college sports? Well, I can better address the attendance than I can the gambling. I think the gambling is just a real unknown right now. Uh, there's a lot of trepidation, I would say, between the ADs and the whole college football world um, because there have been scandals in college football related to gambling in the past when it wasn't legal. Uh, there's two thoughts here. One is the thought that, okay, now that the sunshine is on gambling and it's public, um, now there may be less behind the scenes corruption or, or whatever. Uh, the other side is, Hey, these kids are young kids they are student athletes and, uh, we don't want anybody getting to them with some kind of financial windfall that could corrupt the game. Um, so there's two, two schools of thoughts there. Certainly the revenue, uh, you know, has the potential to be huge. Um, on the other side, on attendance, I think there's some trepidation as to, okay, what's going to happen with the millennials who, in some cases, may not be attending college football games on campus now. And unlike the rest of us on this, on this podcast, you know, that was one of the great things on the weekend when we attended college was to attend the college football game. And so when we graduated, you know, we would, we would make our donations and buy our season tickets and go back because we have great memories in doing that. Well, if these kids now aren't going to games now, what's going to make them want to come back after they graduate in 10 years down the line, buy a season ticket or make a donation? So that's why I think you're seeing some of the drop-off. And after all, the baby boomers are going to, you know, age themselves out of traveling to games. So I think there's a real concern that the chasm over the next 10 years of who's going to be buying the tickets is real. And so we're all trying to make the games more fan-friendly. Um, and that's the challenge right now. I think the other thing you're seeing is ADs are scheduling more home-and-home home with, with major games, uh, major competition, uh, because they want to keep that season ticket base revenue because that's their number one revenue base other than what the conference supplies them in their TV contract. And you start losing donations that are tied to those uh, uh, season ticket bases. You know, financially, you can get yourself into trouble. We are chatting with Gary Stoken, the CEO of the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. You're welcome. I mentioned your sponsor, Gary. I often don't do that, but, you know, you've been so nice to us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. You got it. I'll give you the Chick-fil-A I'll mention you there. Chick-fil-A coupon next time I see you for a free sandwich. Perfect. Chicken for me. Uh, question regarding Nick Saban. I know he's your pal. What would you say to Nick off of that discussion we just had? What do you say to Nick who goes public and pretty much takes his fan base to task for not showing up at the stadium? Sort of like, oh, you don't have school spirit. You ought to be there. Our team deserves. When in my mind, Alabama football, like everything else, all the entertainment, it's just a meritocracy. If people want to go, if they see value in the ticket and a good time, they'll go. Preaching to them that they ought to be there doesn't seem like, to me, the way to go about it. What do you say to Nick when he says, or if he ever asks, hey, Gary, I got a question. They are, My student section's kind of empty. What do you think? What do I do? Well, number one, I applaud Nick Saban for doing that because anytime you're a leader, you have to be passionate about what you're selling, what you're competing in, and what you're, what you're managing. 
And, uh, you know, he sees the output of the student athletes that are competing at, at the University of Alabama in college football. And after all, at the end of the day, those students that are competing in college football, they're fellow students at the universities. So why shouldn't a fellow student support a fellow student, number one? Number two is, hey, just like Bill Vec, if you're not selling, you know, you're, you're dying. If you're stagnating, you're dying. And you can't afford to do that. So you've got to make your sport relevant. You've got to make your team relevant. And so I applaud Nick for supporting something that he's passionate about. Um, and, I, and I think we all have to do that in college football. You know, going back to, you know, Arthur Blank building Mercedes-Benz Stadium, he started with a fan-friendly uh, uh, goal. That was the number one goal in building that $1.6 billion stadium, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And so whether there's a bar, 100-yard bar on the third third uh, floor, uh, that's an amenity you don't see up in the upper level of facilities. Whether he built the biggest halo board so people could experience something new, uh, opening the, the roof, uh, putting the uh, fan-friendly pricing at $2 to buy a Coke and you get free refills. Um, you know, we all have to compete for the almighty dollar right now and, and tickets and attendance. And there's a lot of things for people to do. And after all, for college football, TV is great. You know, CBS and Fox and ESPN, I mean, they've done a great job broadcasting. And, um, you know, that's where you're competing against. So I applaud Nick Saban. Gary, let's, to close it out, let's move away from college football for a second. In the, in the early 80s, you were working at Adidas. You were courting a, a basketball player named Michael Jordan. Tell us how close you were at Adidas to signing Michael Jordan before he went to Nike. Yeah, I had uh, I had been in coaching in North Carolina State and uh, moved from coaching into the business side of sports with Adidas. Um, I had uh, signed Mike Shashevsky when he first got to Duke uh, to an Adidas contract from Army. Um, I had signed Herschel Walker when uh, he left to go pro with USFL. And I had Michael Jordan wearing Adidas all around campus. Um, and uh, Dean Smith was... Uh, with Converse, and so Michael had to wear Converse in games. But uh, in 1984, if you read the book uh, Shoe Dogs, Phil Knight's book, he talks about how they were, you know, close to bordering on bankruptcy because he couldn't get any loans to fund the business. And in the book called Swoosh, written by Rob Strausser, who created the Air Jordan logo, Michael didn't want to go out to Beaverton to visit with Nike. He wanted to sign with Adidas. David Falk forced him to go to, uh, to Beaverton. So he took his dad out there with him. And in the book called Swoosh, after they visited with Nike, uh, David Falk comes out of the meeting and says, Michael, this is unbelievable. We've got to sign with Nike. David, uh, or Michael Jordan's dad, who was living at the time, said, yeah, we're signing with Nike. And there's a quote in the book. Michael Jordan says, no, I want to sign with Adidas. Coming out of that meeting, Michael and I, meet on Franklin Street in Chapel Hill, drinking a Coca-Cola. And Michael says, Mr. Stoken, I was like 25, 26. And he called me Mr. Stoken. Mr. Stoken, I love you. You've been great to me. You've been great to my family. If you can just get close, I love your product. If you can get close on the shoe deal, the apparel, the car, the annuity, the poster program, you know, I'll sign with Adidas. So 
So I wrote up this three-page marketing uh, concept uh, to sign Michael Jordan. Uh, they were going to come out of the the uh, uh, L.A. Olympics in 84, winning the Olympics because the Russians had boycotted, and that we would sign Michael Jordan, you know, in the forum right after winning the gold medal because uh, Adidas was an Olympic sponsor. The global media would be there. And uh, so I write up this, send it to Herzgenar, West Germany, because the wall was still up. And the Germans come back to me and said, we don't have that kind of money to put in the U.S. marketplace. Now, at the time, I had Michael wearing Adidas in Indiana because he practiced up there for the Olympic team playing for Bobby Knight. There's pictures of him in Sports Illustrated and elsewhere wearing Adidas shoes. And so we had and uh, the, the Germans didn't realize that the shoe wars were going to be fought in the United States. And so it was two and a half million dollars. Michael signs with Nike and he sold one hundred twenty six million dollars the first year of Air Jordans with the Chicago Bulls, which at that time would have made him third largest company in the world in the shoe wars behind Adidas Converse and then, you know, uh, Air Jordan. Um, as Michael saw me that next year in, uh, the Bahamas where he ran his golf tournament, he was standing with, uh, Madrashad, uh, Charles Oakley and, uh, uh, Barkley. And I saw him at the Atlantis and, uh, my wife and I, and my two young daughters were walking through to go to, to dinner. And, uh, he called me over and he said, gee, come here. He told the story I just told you, but he, he told went from Barclay, Mr. Stoken to G, to G by the way. To G, that's right. <laughs> Barkley, Oakley, and, and Ahmad Rashad, he told the same story I told you. But he looked at me and said, in a headlock that he put me in, he said, yeah, Gary didn't think I could play, and that's why he didn't sign me, which stuck a dagger right in my heart. Uh, because we had Michael Jordan, and who knows? We signed Michael Jordan. Now, we our margins weren't as good as Nike because they produced in China and Indonesia and Vietnam and you know, there'd be Pony down one line, Nike down another, you know, uh, but we owned our manufacturing, so we had less margin. Um, but we made better shoes, and, uh, you know, we would have sold, let's guess, $50 million of Air Jordan product, but the opportunistic cost would have been, we'd have knocked Nike out of out of the uh, the opportunity to get $126 million. but more importantly, we may have knocked Nike out of business. The more important yeah, phrase would have yeah. Ich bin ein Beaver, Beaverton. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Michael Michael would have been in with Adidas, and uh, you know Nike could have been out of business because uh, without that 126 million from Air Jordan, we know that you know that's a what a two three billion dollar company now, and without that impetus of financial resources, Nike might have been out of business. All over two and a half million dollars. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. Gary Stoken, CEO of the Peach Bowl. Thank you very much for joining us, Gary. Great to be with you, Evan. Thanks so much for having us. I'm just amazed, first of all, that here we are, the start of the college football season. But he mentioned more about uh, the impact of betting on college sports. And for the first time in a while, I've heard someone say, hey, you have to be careful because you don't want to get into uh any problems with the athletes, uh, especially in the collegiate level, about any tampering? Mm-hmm. My takeaway, I, I mean, it has to be the the Michael. How close Adidas was to signing Michael? Two and a half million dollars was all all it would have taken. 
Uh, I know Gary didn't seem all that frustrated. I would be so frustrated if I had delivered Michael Jordan to the doorstep of a major sportswear company before he became, you know, the greatest NBA player of all time. Uh, and, and I couldn't get authorization from, from corporate headquarters, uh, to finalize the deal. Uh, that's amazing. I know that, I mean, I had heard before that, you know, when Nike was courting him, he was also considering other offers. I did not realize exactly how close, Adidas was and how different the sports landscape would have been. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Let's go to the number of the week. This is 200 plus. That's the number. 200 plus. The, the key is the, 200 plus. The number of Indianapolis Colts season ticket holders that have called <laughs> asking for a refund because Andrew Luck is no longer playing. Uh, well, that's a very good guess, but you're dead <laughs> wrong. Uh, we're talking about Washington Nationals pitcher Max Scherzer, who okay. has, for the eighth straight season, thrown more than 200 strikeouts. Eight straight seasons, more than 200 strikeouts, and it came during a game Wednesday when the Nationals beat the Orioles 8-4. to four. That's pretty good, right? Two, uh, yeah. 200 plus strikeouts. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty <laughs> doggone good. Uh, <laughs> One of the highest paid players in the league, right? He's, he's on a $30 million a year contract, something like that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's uh, So he's my, earning that money is what you're saying. And he's on my fantasy baseball team, so you know I'm There happy. you go. Uh, you've been listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online, wherever you get your podcast. You can catch that Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Barr Sports. And I'm Evan Novi Williams at Novi underscore Williams. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.